Al Jazeera podcast. I'm James Bays, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. It's widely seen as one of the Middle East's worst-kept secrets. Israel's nuclear program, believed to have originated in the 1950s, Israel possesses approximately 90 nuclear bombs, according to the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. Israel has never officially acknowledged the existence of its nuclear weapons, but they're believed to be aimed at rivals in the region like Iran. The country is not a signatory to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, so the statement by a cabinet minister saying Israel could opt to drop an atomic bomb on Gaza is raising alarm. More so since hardliners like Amichai Eliyahu, such as the National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir and the Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich, are part of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's cabinet. So as Israel continues its bloodbath in Gaza, should the world be worried about its nuclear arms programme? Well, let's bring in our panel of guests to discuss all of this. In Lahore, Rabia Akhtar, she is director of the Centre for Security, Strategy and Policy Research at the University of Lahore. She's an expert on nuclear non-proliferation and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. In The Hague, Ahmed Abufoul, international lawyer and legal researcher and advocacy officer for Al-Haq, a human rights organisation. And in Bath in the UK, Patrick Berry, defence and security expert at the University of Bath. Thank you, all of you, for coming to speak to us. So these comments that we're discussing come from not a particularly senior member of the Israeli cabinet, uh, the Minister of Heritage. But, Ahmed, they are pretty shocking, aren't they? Um, I wish I could say yes, they are. I mean, understanding the the uh, Israeli mentality and the settler colonial nature of, of, of this regime, uh, um, uh, committing genocide or not hesitating to use a nuclear power wouldn't be uh, very shocking. Uh, it's worth mentioning that Israel has already dropped in Gaza the equivalent of two Hiroshima nuclear bombs uh, and continue to uh, to bomb Gaza. But you're, you're absolutely right. It's it's a very interesting development because Israel for decades has been uh, um, adopting a policy of strategic ambiguity when it comes to its uh, nuclear uh, power. It, it never confirms or denies that it has uh, this power, but an announcement from a member of the government uh, uh, should raise alarm that Israel indeed has uh, uh, this power and won't hesitate to, to use it. So I think this statement must be taken uh, uh, very seriously. Uh, it must be condemned internationally. It's quite uh, outrageous, uh, to be honest, uh, and shameful that at this very moment, we, until this very moment, we still didn't hear any condemnation from uh, the so-called leaders of the free world or uh, from Western uh, states. Before we move on with our discussion, Ahmed, it's, I think it's worth telling our viewers that not only are you an expert on our panel, but you're also from Gaza originally. Yes, you're in The Hague now, but you're from Gaza. How, just before we move on discussing this particular issue, how is it watching these pictures every hour, every day, for a month now of what's happening in your homeland? It's horrifying. It's horrifying. I, as you mentioned, I'm originally from Gaza, born and raised as a refugee. I'm not originally from Gaza, uh, such as, uh, you know, 75% of the population is not from Gaza. They're refugees who were ethnically cleansed from their homes and villages in, in 1948. Um, it's heartbreaking to see the neighborhood where I grew, uh, 
Aben, which is in Gaza City, uh, completely destroyed. There is no justification whatsoever for such cruelty and 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 uh, targeting of uh, of civilian objects and residential neighborhoods. It, it's clearly that this is about uh, causing harm, not necessarily uh, about a military objective. And this was actually stated by the IDF spokesperson when he said the focus is on damage, not on precision. Um, if you allow me, it's important also to, to understand uh, that as as the Secretary General of the UN said, this doesn't didn't happen in a vacuum. This this current situation is a result of 75 years of Zionist Zionist settler colonialism in in Palestine and its apartheid regime imposed on the Palestinian people as a whole. This is a result of 56 years of belligerent occupation, the longest in modern history that is imposed on the Palestinian people in the in the occupied Palestinian territory, including East Jerusalem. And this is also the result of Israel's 16-year-long suffocating blockade on the Gaza Strip, one of the most densely populated areas in the world. Just to give you an idea how bad the situation was even before the war, the, the UN has published a report in uh, 2012 uh, uh, concluding that Gaza will be unlivable by 2020. We're three years uh, uh, past that, with relentless, with complete siege, a medieval-like uh, uh, siege, and relentless bombardment of of, uh, of civilian areas, uh, the equivalent of two nuclear uh, bombs. It's it's absolute insanity that this is happening uh, uh, in 2023, and the world is still cannot even call for a ceasefire. It's utterly shameful for all of these uh, leaders uh, uh, of states around the world, especially in the West, who refuse to call for uh, a ceasefire. I can uh, I can conveniently say that definitely they have uh, a blood of Palestinian children uh, on their hands since they continue to support Israel, uh, um, not only uh, uh, by providing diplomatic coverage, but also sending a weapon uh, and arms to Israel that are being used in Palestinian civilians. OK, let me bring in Patrick now. Uh, this minister, not a particularly senior role, the Minister of Heritage, and I have to admit myself, although I do try and follow uh, events closely, I had not heard of Amichai Eliyahu before these comments, Patrick. Um, and, in fact, one person I spoke to said he's really not a serious player. But this, these are, this raises serious issues, doesn't it? I think <clears throat> I think the rhetoric was serious and shocking, you know, um, uh, and it shows you it was probably, you know, as it came out in a Hebrew local Hebrew radio station, it was probably designed at uh, the internal audience. But, you know, in today's media environment, that gets out very quickly. Um, and he's been relieved of, of post, I think, exactly as your, your previous contributor said. It, um, it does sort of uh, raise questions about the policy of strategic ambiguity, and who knows whether he's actually been fired because of that and breaking Israeli defense policy, or he's been fired as, or as well as uh, for the sort of shocking remarks that they should, they should use nuclear weapons on Gaza or be prepared to. Um, but as you correctly identify, this, this, this guy is not in the defence ministry or anywhere near it, the centres of, of government. So I, it would have been, I think, a better uh, response to remove him immediately from government to show that that's not the kind of thing that's acceptable at all um, than just rather uh, suspending him. I think the wider thing which is going on, which has been interesting, which has happened since... Uh, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, is this normalization of nuclear rhetoric, which has been done essentially this in this phase by Vladimir Putin with his threats 
uh, is talking about his nuclear forces and readiness, and also by his former deputy and, and, and former president, Dmitry Medvedev, uh, who has used social media a lot to put out threats and then retract them. So what we're seeing, unfortunately, is a, is a normalization uh, of, of this nuclear rhetoric, which, of course, is, is incredibly scary for Yeah, let me bring in Rabia on that particular point. I, later on in the programme, I'd like to talk to you more about the specifics of Israel's nuclear programme, Rabia. But that whole, that, that, that the issue that Patrick raises there, using nuclear weapons as a rhetorical threat, that's worrying in its, on its own, isn't it? Absolutely, James. Um, I think, you know, I'm not going to say it's a good news, but it's the same news uh, that has come out of the region in the past one month in 75 years uh, with the banning for whatever it's worth of this Israeli heritage minister from attending further cabinet meetings and making public appearances and invoking nuclear threats. You know, he was not only condemned within Israel, but also by the U.S., and rightly so, and by the rest of the world for considering the use of nuclear weapons in Gaza as a possibility. While I believe this condemnation happened, it is reflective of deep-seated mindset. It reeks of hate. And nuclear weapons, you know, historically, contemporarily, in any settings, do not mix well with hateful rhetoric. And so whenever these two arise in tandem, the world is rightfully worried. That's why, you know, if you go back in time, the race to build nuclear weapons in the U.S. accelerated in the late 40s, because coupled with the Jewish Holocaust, based on Hitler's hatred for Jews, had he required nuclear weapons, perhaps the world would be a very different one today. And if the world understands that about uh, Hitler, um, you know, the world needs to understand that about any regime which has nuclear weapons mixed up with an ideology of hatred, and it's going to bear horrific consequences. Ahmed, he has been suspended, but he's not actually been fired from his job. And I understand he was able to vote in an Israeli cabinet, minister, uh, in a cabinet meeting uh, by phone. And it's also, I think, worth pointing out, isn't it? I mean, he's not the only, the sole extreme right member of this cabinet. It's the most extreme right government in Israel's history. You have Ben Gavir, who's the national security minister, who le lives in an illegal settlement. Uh, you have um, the finance minister, Smotrich, who says the Palestinian people are an invention. Uh, you have not in the cabinet, but you have a man who leads the Shah's party, Arya Derry. Uh, he can't be in the cabinet because of his previous uh, convictions. Uh, but he is one of the official observers to the three-man war cabinet. And um, these people are having considerable influence, are they not, over Israeli public life, Ahmed, uh, at this time? Um, um, at the outset, let me just state this as obvious as it could ever be. Uh, the names you just mentioned, uh, the, the most appropriate place for them is not in any government, is here in The Hague, in a cell uh, uh, belonging to the International Criminal Court, where they, where, where they will be persecuted for uh, um, uh, their actions or the actions of their, of their government. As you rightly pointed out, it's preposterous that these are leading a government and, uh, and making genocidal statements uh, almost on a daily basis, and the world is not uh, is not reacting. That's why I think such statement must be taken very seriously. We're talking about uh, um, uh, very uh, right wing racist ministers 
some of them self-described as fascists, as, as homophobe in the case of uh, Bezos Modric, for example, who can decide the faith of the Palestinian people. Bezos Modric is the uh, the minister of, of, of finance. Uh, Bengavir is the minister of, 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 of national security. He's been arming settlers. Uh, at Lhak, we have been documenting a rise of uh, over 133% of uh, uh, settler uh, uh, terrorism against Palestinians in the West Bank. So these are problematic people that they don't only make statements, they, they take decisions that result, result in suffering of civilians in the occupied Palestinian territories, and they must be uh, uh, held accountable. Uh, Patrick, we had um, Mr. Eliyahu later clarifying his remarks about uh, using a nuclear weapon on Gaza, saying it was metaphorical. But it's worth perhaps quoting some other things that he said in that interview. Uh, we wouldn't have given the Nazis humanitarian aid. There's no such thing as innocence in Gaza. These are shocking comments when you see only a trickle of aid going into Gaza, people there having to drink contaminated water, people are beginning, it seems, to be starving, and of course there's no fuel being allowed in by the Israelis at all, which means hospitals are now barely functioning. Exactly. Look, James, you know, the big picture here is that you're, you're dealing with a, a place and a region where the only strategic stability and security for both people is through a two-state solution. And that's just so clear from a military strategic point of view. Nukes, no nukes, whatever. OK, long term to get people out of the cycle of fear and radicalization. You must do that. And this minister is essentially an irreconcilable. Yeah, he's that far on the hard on the hard right of his party. He sounds like an irreconcilable. He's obviously there's a political dynamic that he can exploit by making these noises internally. Um, and that's often what this this is about. You know, we see the same thing in other far right movements all around the world. You know, it's actually just, they're just using the media and commentary to build up their base or whatever and further fracture an already, you know, polarized um, domestic political space. Um, what I would say about the, the far right movements in, in Israel and these appointments of different ministers is, you know, Netanyahu wasn't a popular prime minister beforehand and he's plummeting, uh, his, his approval rating is dropping now. And essentially at the strategic level, Israel has taken the bait that Hamas and Palestinian jihad set by making that attack. Yeah, combat us and, and, and uh, basically isolate the rest of the Arab world, which, by the way, many nations were starting to try to normalize uh, with the, Israel. Uh, and in the long run, create another pool of fighters who have lost their relatives and want revenge. You know, this it 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 is not the strategic outcome that you would counsel. You know, the strategic uh, outcome would have been to take a pause, yeah, do nothing, mourn, yeah, for first time ever, and then work out what you're going to do strategically. And yes, some people in Hamas who were behind this are going to die. And there's going to be some civilians who are going to die as well because that's the way Hamas fights. But I don't think it has to be at this scale and at this level of what I would call strategic folly. OK, Rabia, I'd like with you to just look a little bit in detail about Iran's... Uh, sorry, Iran. We'll come on to Iran, but Israel's uh, nuclear programme. We've we had the term strategic ambiguity. They don't publicly say they have nuclear weapons, but it's clearly the worst-kept secret in the Middle East. Can you give us... I want a short one, maybe two minutes, three minutes, the potted history of Israel's nuclear programme? Sure. So Israel's policy of uh, nuclear ambiguity is often referred as a Samson option, uh, which is a deliberate strategy of neither confirming nor denying the existence of this nuclear weapons program. 
And this policy has its origin in the historical as well as the security concerns uh, that Israel faces in the region, according to its narrative. Um, program began late 1950s, early 60s, and during the period of regional instability, when it had concerns about its security, and nuclear weapons were seen as means to deter hostile neighbors and ensure the survival of the very state. The security concerns that Israel had, you know, it has fought several wars uh, with its Arab uh, neighbors as well. The nuclear ambiguity policy was intended to deter potential adversaries by keeping them uncertain about Israel's nuclear capabilities and intentions. And it also had some diplomatic and, you know, uh, uh, international benefits as well because it solved some of those concerns. So long for long now, uh, the longest time now, uh, Israeli government has uh, been concerned about the, you know, acknowledgement of nuclear weapons program and the ramifications at the international level. Therefore, neither confirming nor denying Israel avoids triggering non-proliferation obligations or as well as nuclear sanctions under various international treaties. Um, Israel's policy of ambiguity is also intended to prevent a nuclear arms race in the Middle East, because if Israel was to openly acknowledge that it possesses nuclear weapons, it could provoke other regional states like Iran and Saudi Arabia to pursue their own nuclear programs, which will destabilize the region further. Rabia, in, ter in terms of the start of this nuclear program, um, what is quite interesting, a sort of footnote now in history, is that it was the French that helped Israel build this program. And in fact, the heavy water, which was a uh, key component, is a key component in creating a bomb, came from, of all people, given their role in peacemaking in the Middle East, came from uh, Norway. Um, bring us up to speed now. How, how many nuclear warheads do you think... Israel has how, how you know t tell us what their arsenal is now to your knowledge so there is a nuclear notebook that annually comes up with a number for each nuclear weapon state and as of now according to that nuclear notebook Israel has around 90 nuclear warheads and that's that's the figure that comes up and yes historically many countries have contributed to Israel's nuclear program uh, French do top the list Patrick, um, I think it's important maybe to explain the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, the idea, I think, is to stop the know-how to create a nuclear bomb going to more nations. Um, so the nuclear nations are supposed to sign up to that. Uh, India, Israel, Pakistan um, have never signed up to that treaty, I understand. And North Korea withdrew from the treaty. Um, when we talk about the idea of proliferation and, and, and spreading the knowledge, um, going back in history, Israel is widely believed to have shared nuclear knowledge with South Africa when it was under the apartheid regime. Yes, Patrick. absolutely. So the, uh, the NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, uh, is signed by Russia, China, UK, US and France. Um, and the idea was to contain that, that diffusion of, of nuclear knowledge. But, you know, the world being as it is, um, often it's in different nations' interests and obviously of the, those member states and certain, certain allies and partners uh, and often other states, you know, desperately seeking to develop its own know-how too. And what we're seeing, for example, in Iran and their enrichment program, um, depending on, the, it, it seems the majority of that is indigenous. You know, they're trying to do it themselves. Um, potentially with some help along the way in, in different periods of history. But so that's essentially it. It, it, it. Nations do share um, 
it's 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 an interesting insight in terms of the the Norwegians uh, providing the heavy water as well. You know, obviously got very developed in their nuclear program um, during the uh, during and just after the the, the Second World War. Um, but it just reflects that the, the the thing about nuclear weapons is twofold. One, you are basically, if you look at the history, you're basically immune, or it's an insurance card from being invaded. So you can see why a country that had obviously a population that had gone through the Holocaust, traumatized by that, and why the first prime minister, Ben-Gurion, was so keen to drive ahead. You'd had the Jewish scientists, Oppenheimer, Teller, Einstein, all really key people in the development of the nuclear bomb. And Israel has no strategic depth. It's a small country compared to its Arab neighbors. Um, And at the time, in the 60s, uh, you know, faced with large Arab Soviet-equipped um, armies and air forces, so it was seen as its insurance card, and hence why why it pushed ahead with it. Rabia, this makes the whole neighbourhood very dangerous, though, doesn't it? Uh, because we hear about the clashes that are going on and perhaps increasing uh, in the north between Israel and Hezbollah, and of course Iran is close to Hezbollah. Just tell us quickly about Iran's nuclear programme. I, mean, I think it's mainly guesswork by us, isn't it? Because neither Iran gives out any information and the intelligence agencies tracking it, the CIA and the Mossad aren't giving us a run- running commentary. But I saw something uh, earlier in the year a senior Pentagon official, said that back in 2018 it would have taken Iran about 12 months to produce one bomb's worth of fissile material. And this was in February. It would take Iran 12 days. Is that your understanding of how close Iran is right now to what they call breakout? I think uh, with all the reports that are, you know, based on Western intelligence analysis uh, suggests that Iran is a threshold nuclear state and it, it is only a question of intent, uh, whether they are going to go nuclear or not. And yes, the timelines that you have, uh, you know, rightly pointed out. Uh, but, you know, with it's all about the narrative as well, right? So if a country has come out and said that, you know, has issued a religious fatwa, uh, against nuclear weapons being haram, uh, why is that not being taken on face value? Capability aside, South Korea has the capability, Japan has the capability, and these countries also are threshold states, and it's only a question of intent. So why single out Iran? Iran is a threat to the region with respect to its ballistic missile program because it lacks a modern air force. So the long-range, you know, missiles it has can reach Iran as well as Saudi Arabia, you know, something like 12,000, uh, 1,250-mile range. Uh, and because it brings these countries into the range, the narrative about it going nuclear is, is much more in the face as compared to other countries that are also threshold states. We also, Patrick, have an armada of U.S. ships, two aircraft carriers and many, many warships uh, in, the, in the region in the eastern Mediterranean. Also now revealed that there is a nuclear-powered U.S. submarine. We don't know whether it itself is carrying nuclear warheads. But how worried are you about escalation and then potentially miscalculation? So I think on the one, obviously the miscalculation risk is always the, is the worry when things go wrong uh, or there's miscommunication or some sort of accident. That's the that's the, the one the, the uncontrollable. Um, but hopefully, you know, people are doing their best to deconflict behind the scenes. Um, I think in terms of the point of most uh, most worry, I personally would have been past that when when Israel 
launched the ground invasion and there was no massive response by Hezbollah, partly because, of course, you've got two U.S. carrier groups sitting off the coast of Israel. So anything that did happen would have obviously and could have potentially escalated very quickly. Nevertheless, what's interesting, and again, you know, the previous commentator just talked about Iran in the region as a destabilizer. I don't know, you know, it's again, it hasn't been reported that well, but there, the U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria have been taking heavy attacks and the number of wounded, in, up, up to almost 50 wounded, none dead, um, in the wake of the October the 7th attack. And you would think that any responsible power would, would see, given the tensions in the region, would actually dumb that down and, and calm it down. But instead, it's increased by, by, by at least 100% the attacks. Um, Ahmed, and, Ahmed and I'd, like to bring you, I'd like to bring in Ahmed at the end because it, we, we're moving away with this discussion. It's an important discussion from what's going on on the ground in Gaza. And you are from Gaza. And when I look at the pictures, some parts of Gaza look like there's already been a nuclear bomb. Well, yeah, that's 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 correct. The, the the level of destruction caused by Israel is un, unprecedented. But if you allow me, before uh, talking about that, I I I'd like to touch upon uh, something that Patrick said. Um, first of all, this whole notion that the the, the key to security is uh, or and peace is uh, exclusively a certain political solution, be it the two-state solution or any other solution, uh, is a little bit problematic. The uh, um, the key to security and peace should be rooted in justice. Uh, we should have learned the uh, lessons of uh, uh, of World War II and the Nuremberg trials. And let me quote what the uh, uh, prosecutor of Nuremberg trials said. Uh, um, Benjamin Friends said once uh, at the trial that there can be no peace without justice, and no justice without law, and no meaningful law without a court to decide what is just and lawful under, giving, under any given circumstance. The other point I, uh, Patrick mentioned I, I would love to, to, to comment on is that Israel fell in the trap of, of Hamas. I, I don't think that's the case. I think Israel saw an opportunity of what happened in October 7 to materialize a long-announced uh, uh, um, aim and goal to ethnically cleanse the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip and push them to Sinai. This is not a secret. Uh, Israeli leaders have spoken about this for uh, for for a long time, and this seems to be uh, the objective. And now, going to uh, to to answer your question, you're absolutely right. The the, the level of of destruction is unprecedented, and uh, in a way, coupled with Israel's official dangerous genocidal statements, uh, Israel's systematic targeting of protected civilians, uh, mostly women and children, and of protected civilian objects, including hospitals, uh, ambulances, UNRWA schools, bakeries, uh, UNRWA food storages, and water reserves indicate a, a clear, deliberate policy of starvation being used as a method of warfare that aims at inducing people of Gaza to leave the Gaza Strip. These are a, a series of, of war crimes, crimes against humanity, including starvation, uh, um, uh, forced displacement, ethnic cl cleansing, persecution. Uh, this seems to be another Nakba with frequent uh, serious signals of, of a genocide un unfolding before our eyes. Ahmed, thank you very much. And thank you to all our guests, Rabia Akhtar, Patrick Berry and Ahmed Abufoul. This episode was produced by Shantanu Chatterjee, Sarah Moktad, Fungi Unuen and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Senhil Marimutu. The programme was edited by Rommel Asuncion, Zainabada and Joe de Vries. 
Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thanks for listening and tune in again on Thursday when I'll be back for our next edition. Coming up on The Take, we hear what it's been like in Gaza over the past month since the war began, from our correspondents working and raising their families there. That's The Take from Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.